This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Race isn't about black people necessarily. It's about the way in which whiteness works to disfigure and distort our democracy and the ideals that animate our democracy. So we have to have a politics that can interrogate it honestly and do it in such a way that's mature, that opens up space for us to imagine ourselves otherwise. Hello, welcome to the Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. So there's an idea I've been trying to understand recently. Um, some of you directed me to more sociological literature on identity. And one of the distinctions it makes is this distinction between an identity that you have and the process of identification. What what happens in us? What 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 changes in us that we go from you know potentially having claim on an identity to actually making the identification to actually feeling like we are part of that identity? Is that a process that that we control? Is it a process that other people control? That the environment around us controls? This is something that is hard to test, but it's worth thinking about because the question of identity politics isn't a static question. It's about which identities and when do we choose to make those identifications such that that kind of politics becomes important, such that it becomes important to us and such that it becomes important when we see it in others. One of the people I've wanted to talk to about this is Eddie Glaude Jr. He is a scholar of African-American studies at Princeton, author of a really remarkable book called Democracy in Black, and just in general, a, a really sharp thinker on these issues. And I don't want to give away too much in this conversation, but I do urge you to listen to it with that distinction in mind. There's a lot in here about the difference between having an identity and the conditions in which you begin to identify. And thinking about that as something that is a, a variable in politics, I think it it helps make a lot of the fights over identity and a lot of the misunderstandings about identity a lot clearer. One of the things that is consistent in discussions about this is one side, the right, is angry about what they see as people claiming an identity, wrapping their politics in an identity. And another side, um, the left usually, is angry about having what they feel an identity thrust upon them, such that the identification is being forced on them and then being told it's something they're doing. It's something that is their fault. It's a 
cliche in podcasts that we cover a lot of ground, but we do cover a lot of ground in this one. And I think y'all are going to enjoy it a lot. Um, again, we've got, uh, I am collecting questions for an AMA, the Ask Me Anything episode I was going to do before I went on paternity leave, a bit unexpectedly early, but it, it is coming back. That's at EzraKleinShow at Vox.com if you've got a question. Again, EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. But here's Eddie Cloud Jr. Eddie Cloud Jr., welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. Since this is going to be a conversation uh, substantially about race, I thought it makes sense to to begin at the bedrock question. In you often hear that race isn't real, that it was just a construct created to justify racism. And you have an interesting discussion of of that argument in your paper on on black identity and pragmatism. So could you talk through a little bit about how you look at that? Yeah, I mean, typically when people make the argument or make the claim that race isn't real, uh, it it kind of exposes a particular understanding of language, right? That you have these signs that are representations of these objects that exist apart from language. And that makes no sense to me, right? So races are as real as $5 bills. You know, $5 bills are socially constructed because on one level, it's just simply paper with ink on it, right? So there's a way in which race enters into a certain kind of semantic field that allows us to understand uh, have allowed us to understand difference among human beings. It has enabled people to uh, engage in that kind of categorization and 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 informed and shaped the distribution of benefit and burden. Uh, it has been at the heart of uh, kind of the modern West in some ways, uh, and has uh, left in its wake uh, an enormous amount of carnage. So it's not sufficient to say that races aren't real, that they're, you know, by virtue of the fact that they're socially constructed, uh, race is part of the language we use and that language helps us move about and it has uh, immediate and, and tangible and material consequence. This seems like one of these places where the tendency of language itself to force us to draw sharp lines between one thing and another is part of the problem. Right. It sounds to me like what you're saying is we somehow need to both believe that race is real and isn't real simultaneously. And language makes it hard to talk about that. When people say it's not real in the way maybe you think it's real, it's not wrong, right? There's a point being made there. But also to say it's right. not real violates our understanding of what real is. Yeah. I mean, so on, on the one hand, people are trying to make the argument that race is socially constructed. They want to insist that it has a history, it has a beginning. And to the extent to which it has a beginning, we can we can actually make the case for its ending. You know what I mean? So to kind of throw it into history allows us to kind of demystify it so that we can get our minds around it and we can perhaps um, imagine a way in which we could live in a kind of post-race life. That to me is is reasonable. It makes a lot of sense. But at the same time, we've lived uh, hundreds of years in some ways with with the language of race. Uh, and people have been singled out for particular treatment because of it. And so what does it mean then to to say that race is, is no longer real, it's a social construction, and then to try to banish its use when we still have people who are, shall we say, bearing the burden of the consequence of that language? One um, of the ways in which we can perhaps think about this, Ezra. Um, the language has had a consequence in how people organize their lives. So how then do we muster the resources to speak to the specificity of the kind of hell we're catching? If we say that race is no longer real, but race language has justified right, the subordination of people over generations, and it 
singles us out for a particular kind of treatment. Let me put it more specifically. Think about policing. If we don't have access to the use of race language to describe uh, racial differences and how communities are policed, then how do we mobilize communities to respond to the to, to the specific harm that's being experienced? Right? So it's one thing to try to deny or to undermine the, the, the claim that race somehow exists outside of history. It's another kind of move to then ignore what race language has done in history. But this seems to connect sense. in a very, it does, and this seems to connect in a very deep way to, to some of the thinking you've done around identity and, and, and how identity plays into politics, where mm-hmm. there are very good reasons to not want to think about identities as totalizing. They're not totalizing in our everyday lives. And for all kinds of logical reasons, all kinds of empirical reasons, we all have many identities or many ways to view us. And yet, when you say that we shouldn't have politics with reference to identity and to what certain groups go through, you lose an important capacity to talk about life as it is lived, that there's a, an idealism to that, that as much as people might wish it were true, it only works if your identity is the one <laughs> that gets to make the laws. Um, you know that then that's a great position for which to say well let's not talk about how identity plays into politics but if you right. don't get a choice about whether your identity plays into the way the state treats you well then it matters you know absolutely you know i mean so typically when we are moving about our daily daily lives you know particularly in black communities for example you're not walking around the barbershop declaring that you're black <laughs> you know you just kind of live your life right so it, it it's typically the moment in which you invoke uh, a particular kind of identity, racial identity, sexual identity, like in most instances, Ezra, it's it's aimed at orienting your interlocutor in a particular sort of way. So when I if I if I if I say the sentence, I'm you know I'm black, in the context of an argument or discussion around a particular issue like affirmative action, the idea is to get my interlocutor to pay attention to this as opposed to that. Right. It and sometimes it can slip into a claim about some essential characteristics of what it means to be black, but usually it's aimed at or reorienting people to particular histories, to to particular experiences and the like. Um, and so oftentimes when when people want to say that that identity politics are, are necessarily bad, um, I I, I kind of it raises the hackles on my neck uh, because. If identity politics at, at, at their root are really about the question of justice and how do we talk about the way in which harm is experienced, how can I talk about this undeserved harm as opposed to that, then identity politics isn't a red herring. It's actually aimed at getting us to see what's in view, what's actually happening in front of us. And oftentimes when we're denying the relevance of identity politics, we're actually playing identity politics. It's the irony of it all, if it makes sense, if that makes sense. Can we hold on the word used a minute ago, orienting? Because I think this is a really interesting idea in this. You you bring up a, a quote from the philosopher Richard Wardy in, in one of your papers mm-hmm. about this, that oftentimes what people are doing when, when they invoke um, where they come from or, or, or what groups they belong to is not insisting that they can't be questioned, but orienting something for, for the other. I don't think that's a super familiar concept. So could you just unspooled a little bit. What does it mean if I try to orient you in my conversation? So, for example, if if in our daily ex, you know, living, we don't walk around declaring our identities, right? 
I'm, when I'm in the barbershop getting my hair cut, a black barbershop, right? It would be odd if I suddenly jumped up and said, you know, I'm black. Or if I go, if I showed up at the at the picnic, you know, at the family barbecue, and suddenly uh, engaged in a treatise on 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 what it means to be a black a black person. Uh, typically, when we invoke our identities, the aim, as I said, is to kind of get our uh, the persons that we're in conversation with to pay attention to something. You know, as we as we are talking about this, perhaps you should maybe consider what has Jim Crow. What might Jim Crow? Or segregation. What might that uh, experience have? Ha- what might effect that might have had on the topic at hand? Oh, what would it mean for me to be, you know, a, a black Southerner from Mississippi, you know, raised uh, in the aftermath of of you know King's murder? How might that? impact the way in which we're talking about, say, affirmative action or the way in which we're talking about uh, police violence in the country, right? So oftentimes, or, you know, if you're LGBTQ or if you're a woman, when you're invoking these experiences, right, the aim is to say to one's interlocutor that we ought to pay attention to certain things that aren't necessarily being paid attention to, right, in this conversation that we're having, uh, so it's aimed at, or, this is the way in which I'm, I'm using the verb orient. It, it aims at orienting your interlocutor so that, so that much more can come into view. But oftentimes what happens is that you want, most times we want to bracket that and we want to think about the question of justice abstractly. And so to think about, because I think identity politics, to my mind, Ezra, is always in most part, for the most part, about the question of justice. How do we address undeserved harm? Right. How do we deal with the fact that someone is being treated unjustly because she is a member of a particular group that has been singled out for unjust treatment? And oftentimes when we want to speak to the specificity, stop, that's a kind of crude and barbaric word. Specificity. When we speak to the specificity of that experience. My crude and barbaric words are much worse. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's just unnecessarily uh, jargon, jargonistic, right? So, but, but, you know, when we talk about what's happening to me because I'm black, right? That is, my son is being stopped by the police for this reason. And the data shows that my child or your child is being singled out for uh, a kind of punishment disproportionately. Why? And to point that out is not to engage in bad identity politics. It's it's to try to orient your interlocutor to what's happening that is fundamentally unjust. So let me try to take the other side of this discussion. Um, one thing that people often say is that, well, they don't say it quite like this, but <laughs> but it's not orienting. <laughs> it is shutting down. That when people in modern political and social discussion say, well, in my experience— or what happened to me was that they are taking discussions that are supposed to be ideally in the realm of empirics and they're pulling them into the realm of not just identity but personal experience and as such you're no longer allowed to have a conversation about it because you know oh if you say anything you're just speaking from privilege and your privilege makes your your uh, mm-hmm. uh, views on this worthless and so how do you see that process of of orienting playing out with you know, somebody then saying, well, sure, that may have happened to you, but or or maybe it even didn't happen to you. But I don't think that's what is true socially. How do you think about that scaling up of the conversation from the individual or even the group to the societal? Right. I mean, then then, then it becomes a question for how we want to kind of 
manage or grapple with uh, the historical context out of which the experience is being uh, made known, right? So it's it's one thing to talk about my son's experience with the police, and it's another thing to generalize that experience to, you know, to to black people as such, right? So then you can begin to say, look, my children are subject. You know, they call it the black tax, trying to make it concrete, right? My children are subject to the, or my son subject to the black tax. What does that mean? That black parents have to be concerned with uh, uh, the safety of their children to a to a degree that white parents aren't. So when I when my son used to go out as a teenager, I worried not so much about. Uh, him doing stupid things as teenagers are want to do, but I worried that he would not have a bad encounter with the police, right? Um, and so I could talk about that in terms of my own individual experience, and then I could then make it make a more general claim around the data, the statistical data around uh, uh, black men and black women or black boys and girls or young teenagers and their encounter with the police. Now, what's interesting is that Ezra, I could bring forward that general statistical data and still not be believed. I could move it from individual experience to a broader category, right? a, a broader generalization, and people will still claim that I'm engaging in identity politics, even though the data is there, right? So, so you know, we can look at it in the context of Betsy DeVos, right? The data is clear that black and brown students are disproportionately singled out for disciplinary treatment, right? Discriminatory practice in relation to the doling out of, of, of disciplinary treatment. But she says that we need to treat students as individuals when the data is clear. So I can move from individual experience to the data, the more generalized data, but I'm still running up against the same argument. So the question that one has to then confront is the argument actually being made in good faith. Right. <laughs> Right, and all, and 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 I agree that often it isn't. To me, something that that you're saying here, the, the way I, I sometimes think about this, and it seems to me to connect it to the way you're presenting it, the world is unbelievably complicated. What we know right. about it is limited, and what we choose to study in it is limited, and and what we choose to study in it is also a choice. It's what kinds of studies get funded. It's where people decide to put their time. It's where think tanks or academics or foundations are actually putting in work. And one of the things that I think is valuable about people being empowered to speak from their experience and to try to connect to people who've had that experience alongside them is that it's a form of, of hypothesis generation. That right. if people are coming to you um, and saying, you know, saying Black Lives Matter, that there is something deeply, deeply wrong in policing in this country. Well, that's information. And then you can go and try to layer that information on top of more studies and or you can try to commission studies or you can, you know, go send reporters out to try to understand it. Um, but if you if you wall yourself off to that kind of information, if you wall yourself off to the information people get from living their lives um, from a different place than you live your life, whether that place is a different class or a different um, geographical region or it's having a different mm -hmm. accent or whatever it might be, a different skin color or a different religion, if you wall yourself off from the information that comes out of those experiences, you're not going to know what to look for. You're not going to know that there are things out there that, that don't happen to you. Well, see, the interesting thing about this, Ezra, is that in the context of the discussion of race matters in this country, people wall themselves off because to confront what is being said involves confronting your implication, how you are implicated in what's being said. Or to put it more directly, 
white America has historically refused to look the ugly facts of racism in the face, of white supremacy in the face, because to do so is to confront, without any hint of sentimentality, the ugliness of who we are. So it has always been the case, and, and here I'm echoing James Baldwin, that one of the most frustrating features of being black in this country is the ongoing demand and effort to convince white people that what's happening to us is actually real. You know, you can think about dusk, dusk, you know, W.B. Du Bois's Dusk of Dawn, published in 1940. This is his autobiography. I think it's his second autobiography, first autobiography. And in Dusk of Dawn, Du Bois charts this story, this narrative, right? That, you know, trained at Harvard, trained in Berlin, right? I mean, you know, in some ways, one of the founders of, of, of American sociology with the Philadelphia Negro, he understood that he, he had this view that it was really ignorance at the heart of American prejudice, at the heart of American racism, that white America simply did not know about black folk. And so he engaged in the Atlanta studies. He wanted to show very clearly, right, just reveal the complexity, the depth of black life through scientific data, with scientific data, right? And then he came across Sam's, Sam Hose's knuckles in a grocery store. And he said, oh, my God. It made him realize that this wasn't about a rational debate. This wasn't about reason. Something else was going on here. Right. So just as I said, right, I could move from individual experience and then people are saying, well, you're, you're invoking experience in a way that locks me out. Right. You're shutting down conversation. Then I could move to data and then people could ignore the data. And then you've got to ask the question, are folks engaging you in good faith or bad faith? Right. So at the heart at the heart of this is that we can present study upon study upon study to show right, that racial inequality is not the result of millions of black people making bad choices every single day, but as a result of deep structural inequities that have deep historical roots and folks still won't give a damn. One of the things I find so fascinating in that realm of the discussion is when I started in political journalism in sort of the early aughts, uh, there was still a lot of that discussion about pathologies of black communities. Um, mm -hmm. It wasn't quite as loud as I think it had been, you know, 10 years before, but it, but it was very much there. And, you know, uh, single families and social breakdown and, and, and all this stuff sort of flowing down from the Moynihan report. And something that happened in the ensuing, I think, like 15 years that I've been watching this is a lot of white communities went through a lot of the same socio-cultural and socioeconomic changes that black communities had had forced mm -hmm. upon them. They had deindustrialization. They had um, a lot of outflow of money and, um, and, and talent. They had a lot of businesses move out of there as business began to concentrate in, in, in particular areas of the country. And then they began to exhibit the exact same changes in family patterns, the very, very similar changes in drug use and other things. And of course, we dealt with it very differently. I mean, the, the way we've spoken to the opioid epidemic is very different than the way we did to the crack epidemic. Mm -hmm. But nevertheless, there there was a, an underlying proving out there, right? An, an underlying um, test of the question is some of what we see in poor communities a function of individual decisions or is it a function of the environment and the social context in which those communities operate? And I don't think there's been a great rethinking 
as we've seen a pretty powerful test of that proposition come out very decisively for one side over the other. Right. I mean, you can think about this. And I mean, we we know that there's been a long, long history of uh, pathologizing of white poor people. I think Nancy Eisenberg's extraordinary book, White Trash, uh, the 400-year untold history of class in America kind of gives us a sense of the way in which the discourse around the white po- white poor um, has has developed over time in the country, or you know from that kind of broad history to hillbilly el- hill, you know hillbilly elegy, right? Where there's a sense in which the kind of discourse that we typically associate with the black poor we find in Charles Murray and in, in aspects of hillbilly elegy applied to the white poor. But what's interesting here, I think, is is that I think that that shift in contemporary discourse uh, is is actually a reflection of an ongoing defense of of neoliberal economics, right? Because neoliberalism, however we might want to define that, has exposed white workers and the white poor to a level of devastation. Uh, that almost breaks the con the, the presumed contract between white folks, right? That whiteness won't protect you from the winds of of economic precarity, um, and so in a, instead of pointing in a finger at an economic philosophy that uh, deepens right the precarity of workers, instead now we have to look at uh, the cultural behavior of white workers. Right, they drink too much. Uh, you know, all the things that we, you know, pathologies that are exhibited in the family, they're not committed to hard work and the like. It becomes in some ways in a defense of an economic philosophy that I, I would say, I would argue that the contradictions are in full view. Uh, and instead of looking at those contradictions squarely and honestly, we start looking at the choices of people who are bearing the brunt of those contradictions. So, but something I think is interesting about that, um, and, and I, I would need to that's like the, sometimes there's a comment on this podcast. Where I'm like, let me think about that for two days, and then we'll come back and we'll we'll continue the conversation. But, that's great. You know, one of one of the things that comes to mind when you say that is this monologue Tucker Carlson went on. I guess now a month or two ago, or a couple months ago. Uh, my sense of time is very fucked up after having a kid. Um, so maybe <laughs> well maybe it was be. in 2015. Who knows? Um, but but he went on this monologue about how the white working class has been devastated and the capitalists have screwed them over and um, you know that they they need help they haven't been given and the idea of having a, an economy is to is to work for people not to not to work on them um, and so it's been taken as this grand statement of conservative populism although I don't see a huge amount emerging from it in a in a serious policy way on the right but nevertheless one thing that really struck me about it is the way in which it has such a limited zone of empathy. It was only when it was happening, and 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 Carlson really said this pretty explicitly in an interview with um, Jane Coaston at Vox. He said, you know, it's only when it was really happening to the communities he identified with that he could see that, oh, you know, maybe maybe this was about something bigger, a bigger context than them themselves. And so, on the one hand, I, I take the point that the focus on individual choices is often a way of moving attention away from broader structural um, harms and broader structural solutions. But it also just seems to me to be, uh, and this goes a little bit back to our conversation about identity, people are able to have very different interpretations of the same data when they see it happening to folks that they are tuned to consider generously. 
versus when they see it happening to folks whom they're tuned to consider not generously and who they see helping might take something away from them versus even a Tucker Carlson, where that is to some degree his watchership on Fox News. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that's I think that's exactly right. Um, you know, when you have a society that presumes that the threshold for 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 pain among black folk is higher than the threshold of pain among others, when you have uh, general perceptions around black children where you don't see, you know, what uh, Tamir Rice was 12 and they, the police thought he was 21. Um, when you have perceptions uh, that in some ways justify uh, uh, the treatment, um, it, it of course blunts the capacity to empathize because right? you don't see oneself, you don't see you, yourself in community with those people. Uh, they are wholly other in interesting sorts of ways. Um, and so your orientation to those communities is, is, is always philanthropic. It's charitable. It's not about justice, you see. Um, so because you're not really thinking about just arrangements when you're thinking about those folks, right? You only think about what you can give them, right? And you're not really challenging the underlying realities that produce uh, uh, the evils, as it were. So Tucker Carlson is, is, is very explicit about who he cares for. And then at the same time, Ezra, he'll, he'll critique identity politics. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, watch Fox for 25 minutes at a time. And it's like you go all the way from the worst problem in America is there's no free speech to let's fire this college professor who said some things I don't like. They I are mean, that's, awash that's in contradiction in and, hip, and hypocrisy, you know. So at that point, you kind of say to yourself, Right. You know, it's like listening to Rahm Emanuel, you know, complain about Jesse Smollett. You know, Come on, dude. You didn't say a word. You, I mean, you sat on that tape for how long with regards to Laquan McDonald? Give me a break about your moral outrage. You're a hypocrite. And so because we're, you know, hypocrisy is always in the solution, you know, always in the water. It becomes very difficult um, uh, to, to attribute good faith to these folks when they make these sorts of crit critiques and claims. Support for the gray area comes from Mint Mobile. When you hear secret sauce, maybe you think of the mysterious ingredient in your favorite burger. Or perhaps it's your grandmother's terrifying meatloaf, which somehow seemed to secrete sauce. But from now on, when you hear secret sauce, I want you to think about Mint Mobile. Their secret is that they only sell wireless service online. That means they can cut the cost of retail stores and pass those savings directly to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash gray area. That's mintmobile.com slash gray area. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash gray area. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. 
talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. What do you think when you see the efforts right now of some of the presidential candidates to embrace the idea of reparations, but to do it through universalist programs like a big EITC policy or some kind of big tax credit policy or for Cory Booker, you know, baby bonds as an asset building yeah. strategy? You know, I think that's a great question. I think it's it's a sign. And, and you know, I, I'd be interested in hearing what you think about this. I think we're at the kind of the end of of the age of Reagan. A certain kind of political consensus is collapsing in front of us. I don't know what will take its place, but the the, the common sense of American politics since 1980, whether it's small government, whether it's deregulation, whether it's tax policy, uh, criminal justice policy, and the like, that these things are crumbling uh, in front of us. Um, and um, it, it has opened up space for a different kind of thinking. Um, and so as the country's demographics are changing, we're seeing a broader and bolder visions, you know, vision making uh, happening in the public domain. So to hear uh, a, a nuanced conversation about reparations in the public domain is about as uh, uh, unimaginable for someone like me who came up in the eighties, you know, as here, you know, reading in, in the, you know, on the op-ed page of the New York times or the wall street journal about taxing marginal rates, raising tax, you know, <laughs> raising, uh, you know, the tax on, on marginal rates. So, so, so both I think reflect a shift. So the way in which uh, Senator Booker and others are talking about it, I think is really, really interesting. Many of us remember Kennedy, the, the former uh, director of Trans-Africa, who's now now passed, um, and others bringing up the reparations debate. And now we see it uh, taking shape in terms of broad cultural, po- broad political policies to address systemic inequality. That seems to me uh, not only uh, uh, wise, but uh, something that is that is deeply plausible. So one of the things that I think lies behind this, you mentioned demographic change, but there's also this sorting of the electorate. Um, one, one of the ironies of Obama's presidency has been that for all the misguided ideas that it would make American politics post-racial or represented uh, America itself being post-racial, it actually further racialized American politics. It it seems to have sent um, whites who had more conservative ideas on race towards the Republican Party. It um, created much more of identification with the Democratic Party among um, non-white voters and racially liberal whites. My colleague, Matt Iglesias, just wrote a pretty interesting piece that published um, on the site today uh, called The Great Awakening, which is a nice terminology. <laughs> yeah, and I like that. one of the things that he he shows in there is that on all of these different measures, if you now measure white liberals, unlike in the past where they were still more racially conservative on many issues than just average black voters, they're now more racially liberal on them. So if you ask white, uh, white liberals, should there be, quote, special favors um, for African-Americans to close uh, racial inequality to 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 recompense for some things that have happened in the past, they'll say yes in higher numbers even than average black voters. I'm curious what you think when you hear a finding like that. I would want to drill down in the numbers. You know, my my intuition would would lead me to believe that 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 would look differently depending upon which you know whether or not we're talking to Gen Xers, baby boomers, or millennials. A larger percentage of millennials would millennials who are liberal would would probably fall into that category. 
I think I'm not sure about Gen Xers and, and, and baby boomers. I would be interested to see what that looks like. Are you talking here for the liberal whites or for the... Yeah, for the, the liberal yeah. whites. You know what I I'm mean? I'm sure that's so, correct. Yeah. So, so, so it leads me to kind of understand or it will help, help us understand the kind of civil war that's going on in the Democratic Party right now. That there are certain... Uh, the generational differences evidence themselves in very distinct and different ways. So if I see millennials... Uh, tracking more to to the view of being racially liberal in the sense that you just laid out, um, and and baby boomers aren't, and Gen Xers are kind of somewhere in the middle. It makes me more optimistic or hopeful, rather, about the future of the Democratic Party and hopefully the American left. It, you know, again, we have an opening. How long it will last, I'm not sure, but we have an opening to really really do some transformative work if we're bold enough and courageous enough to put forward uh, bold politi- you know, policy visions. Um, but, you know, our history doesn't bode well in this regard, Ezra. Um, when we had these openings in the past, uh, we would do something and then it would close pretty quickly. I feel like you could tell that story two ways, though. One way is that we're seeing this sorting of the two parties such that racial conflict is emphasized rather than suppressed between them. Right. As the Democratic Mm -hmm. Party becomes a party really of non-white voters and racially liberal white voters and the Republican Party becomes the inverse. Well, it just becomes a party of white voters um, who are more who are more racially conservative, but just white voters in general. Uh, I think the numbers here, the Democratic Party is about is coming up on 50 percent non-white and the Republican Party Mm -hmm. is over 90 percent white. On, On the one hand, it is allowing for conversations like these. In some cases, it's encouraging conversations like these because rather than wanting to suppress issues of racial um, justice that could be divisive within your coalition, you want to use them to create a, a distinction with the other coalition. And so you end up having them more frontally in politics, which I think is an unexpected but but possibly useful legacy mm-hmm. of Obama. On the other hand, you know the, the other way of looking at it, and you do hear this a lot, is that these are the most controversial and explosive issues in American life. They they raise partisan conflict. They layer on top of partisan conflict some of our most um, dangerous enmities. And it, it accelerates and escalates the stakes of politics to mm-hmm. a yet more dangerous level in a time when they're already pretty dangerous. I'm curious if you come down on one side of that or the other. Um, I, well, I, I, let, let me say this. I think it's important for us to understand the impulse of the latter um, and to understand how fundamentally dangerous it is. So if it's the case that underneath our politics uh, rests this racial animus that can be activated under different circumstances by different political actors for a a range of ends um, and can be manipulated as we play on people's fears and hatreds, um, and then we repress it again. What we end up doing is allowing it to exist, to continue to metastasize, and to infect our politics. So on, on, on the one hand, there's an acknowledgement of what's already there and a demand that we not acknowledge that fact, the fact that it's there uh, in our public discourse. And what happens is that it bubbles up. It's exploited by particular bad actors uh, or, and not so bad actors, and we find ourselves on this racial hamster wheel. This has kind of been the nature of our politics since, you know, we, we might call it the kind of post-civil rights consensus, right? We don't talk about this racial animus. We can allude to it. We can dog whistle. Uh, 
It's there, but we can't really talk about this stuff explicitly. Right. Let's banish the white supremacists to the margins. Uh, we can't rebrand them. These folk are out of bounds. But we can do all sorts of things that could that could signal to them that we are in some ways um, in solidarity with with at least a portion of their position. Right. Uh, so it seems to me that the better choice is to finally get it out and and out front, so that we can actually consciously leave it aside. Or uh, consciously, deliberately uh, decide uh, to be otherwise. But that, that depends on whether or not we will make that decision, right? Or make the that, opposite this, decision. And, right. This is what was so beautiful about what Reverend Barber did in, in North Carolina with the Moral Monday movement. And it's not just Rever, Reverend Barber. It's a, it's a whole coalition of folks who are in North Carolina. Now he's de- de- doing the pe- Poor People's Campaign with Reverend Theo Harris. But but I think that it's it's really important. I remember interviewing him for Democracy in Black, and he said, look, you got to put the, you can't bury the anti-racist position in your effort to build coalition across, you know, uh, different constituencies. Because if you try to bury it, it becomes the Achilles heel of your movement. And that's that's a quote from him. Right. Race is so fundamental. And remember, race isn't about black people necessarily. It's about the way in which whiteness works to disfigure and distort our democracy and the ideals that animate our democracy. So we have to have a politics that can interrogate it honestly. And do it in such a way that's mature, that opens up space for us to imagine ourselves otherwise. Now, that is a decision that can happen if you have an active electorate, right? Black and brown folk and anti-racist folk who happen to be white working to push the country in a different direction. We have an opening for that and we can't allow it to be shut down because we're afraid. I want to go to something you said in there about um, American ideals. Um, People, I think, tend to believe that America's democratic ideals, its liberal democratic ideals, and the racism that has always been threaded through our law, our intention with each other, that, that one has often been wielded against the other. And, and you write in the book that America's democratic principles do not exist in a space apart from our national commitment to white supremacy. They've always been bound together, sharing bone and tissue. Can you, can you talk through that? Because I think it's quite a different idea of this than the conventional wisdom holds. Yeah, see, I'm deeply skeptical of the legend, right? That if as long as we think we're on the road to a more perfect union, we have the most efficient ideology to let ourselves off the hook. It's almost as if uh, the American idea constitutes an ongoing moral holiday. And we can then do everything, anything we want and leave all the carnage behind because then we could say, well, see, we did that, but we're on our way to be, you know, to a more perfect union in some ways. A certain kind of perfectionism insulate our practices from a certain kind of critique. The problem isn't a distinction between what we do and what we say we believe. If we look at the if we look at American history, what we do actually reveals what we believe. And the ideals themselves serve as cover. 
have served as cover. Now, mind you, they have offered uh, uh, resources for people to for people in the tradition out of which I come to bring critique to bear on the failure of us to live up to our ideals. I mean, I'm thinking from Douglas to Anna Julia Cooper to Ida B. Wells to to Reverend Barber to, you know, we can talk about uh, the ways in which we can appeal to the best of America's tradition in order in order to call attention to our practices. But part of what I'm trying to get at here, and, and I had this conversation with John Meacham about the soul of America, is that you can look the ugliness in the face and not understand how those terrors continue to move us about because we so quickly turned our attention away from them in order to talk about, you know, the more perfect union stuff. When in fact, it's like a child who's had a, a traumatic experience and that traumatic experience continues to move her about as an adult. Right. So. I honestly believe, and see, this is something that we have to think about. There's, there are these moments, Ezra, where it seems as if the country is going to be otherwise, and then we turn our backs. So you think about the Civil War and, re- and radical reconstruction. What do you get in the aftermath of radical reconstruction? You get Jim Crow. You get convict leasing, slavery by another name. Right. So you get a, we turn our back on uh, uh, the idea of a radical multiracial democracy and we double down on whiteness and gener- another generation has to deal with the betrayal. You think about the mid 20th century civil rights movement, about black freedom movement. What do you get in response? Uh, you get the tax revolt in northern California. You get calls for law and order. And just 15 years after the passage of the voting um, Fair housing act in 68, you get Reagan. Right. Not 15, 15 years at the Voting Rights Act. You know, the last one was 68. But 12 years later, you get Reagan, which is which is Barry Goldwater thrust finally wins. I mean, this is Reagan, the governor of California. I mean, embodies betrayal. That's triggering, just like Donald Trump is. Right. And then you get, you know, Obama gets elected. And what do you get? You get the, you know, voter ID laws. You get the vitriol of the Tea Party. And then you we vomit up Donald Trump. So. The language of ideals and perfection obscure what we have done and continue to do on the ground. And so I flip it. Our practices reveal what were our commitments. Right. Um, And until we kind of confront that honestly, um, without flinching and without sentimentality, right, we will always we will continue to be on this racial hamster wheel. This is a a place in the book where you quote Martin Luther King Jr., but in an interesting way, I think people hear this and what you're saying in a way is is tricky because you're you're combining a story that does include great progress from from a a quite horrific past with Mm -hmm. also great betrayal. And something that that you quote King saying, uh, if I'm remembering this correctly, is that uh, America believes in improvement, but not equality. Right. He, of course, said it much more eloquently Mm -hmm. and that. That it, it's in that gap in between the story of progress um, being used to erase the story of continuing and in cases widening inequality that that the betrayal sits. Is that a fair rendition Absolutely. of that? Absolutely. You know, and and if we just if we're committed to improvement, Ezra, then we're back at what I said earlier that racial justice is a philanthropic enterprise, as if. White America has something to give other folk. And if that's the formulation, then we haven't gotten out of anything. We're still trapped. 
right? We're still caught. You know, Jimmy, Jimmy James Baldwin talks about the categories that trap us and, and how when we use this language, we're constantly springing the traps on ourselves. Um, uh, we need to imagine our association with one another differently. Um, and to, to, to open that up requires right, an honest encounter with the terror and horror at the heart of the American project. It's not on the margins. It's at the heart of who we are. Something that you write in the book that I think is deeply true is that an inability to face up to this creates interesting, interesting is much too soft a word there. It, it has consequences in our politics. And, and you say that mm-hmm. if you reject the claim that white supremacy still shapes a country, then there are only two ways to reconcile what has happened across America. Either you point to the passage of civil rights legislation or to a black man in the White House and declare the race problem solved, or you decide that black people must be at fault for their own terrible condition. This idea that that discourse only leaves you with two options, either to minimize racial inequality or to blame African-Americans and, and other non-white groups uh, differently for racial inequality, it, it, that seems true to me. Um, and, mm. and that seems like a vise we put ourselves in without often even recognizing it. Yeah, I mean, we just saw it once. We just saw one version of it uh, uh, recently when Jesse Smollett in Chicago lied or did whatever he did. Um, conservatives lost their minds and in some ways said, here we have an example of how people trade in victimization falsely. Right? And, and, and then kind of expanded outward to a broader claim, right? Because the idea is to use the false claim of Smollett to call into question other claims that are being made, right? That, that in some ways folks are trading in victimization. And these are in some ways uh, related. That is to say that you have to be making up stuff because look at you, you teach at Princeton. You have to be making up stuff because we've had a black president. Look at you, you know, things are better, right? Things are different, right? We can't be the society that you say we are. And, and all of this is, is an evasion of responsibility, right? It's an attempt to, to duck Right, a certain kind of responsibility and judgment, and in doing so, whenever you have these evasions, there's also you, you know people seem to retreat to the safety of some kind of illusion. Right, that is America uh, or the United States has somehow embodies what it means to be a a truly liberal, just, and democratic society, um, when the evidence suggests that that's just not true. It seems to me. The, the place where you get the, the pushback in this conversation is the idea that, well, then, is what we're saying, is what is a conversation we're having, is it a kind of group determinism where the only way you could know if you had an equal country is that at every level, in every domain, in every respect, every group has the exact same outcomes at all times. And in doing that, you've wiped out individual choices, you've wiped out different differences in cultures, you wiped out all the things that go into the the complex operation of human life in return for a view that it is entirely the state and to some degree, you know, broader ideological currents that decide outcomes. And we can't ask anything of of, of any individuals. How do you answer that um, charge? Well, first of all, we have to challenge its initial premise, right? That is to say, the, the assumption is that the current state of affairs 
reflects a level playing field. And unless you concede to the fact that it isn't, um, and that it isn't for historical and for contemporary reasons, and your answer then uh, would have to be that I'm more committed to a principle of meritocracy and uh, the unfettered exercise of, of individual liberty, no matter the evidence of historical inequalities that shape the, the playing field in which we exercise that liberty, then you would have to make it explicit your commitment to the ongoing inequality that defines the playing field. Or to say it more simply, either you have to admit that the playing field is not level and that you're just committed to that fact, right? Or you have to embrace something much more robust. That is to say, we have to try to find a way to become the kind of society where no matter the color of your skin, no matter your zip code, no matter who you love, no matter your gender, that you can not only dream dreams, but you can acquire the skills and resources to make your dreams a reality. That's not a guarantee of the equality of outcome, right? But it's actually trying to address the inequality of the, that's inherent in the current playing field. And so part of what these folk want me to do or want us to do is just simply concede to the playing field as it is. And then you kind of say, yo, wait a minute. That makes no sense. You think, you know, you think the wealth gap is just because black folk ain't working hard? You think the fact that you see the difference in home ownership is just because black folk haven't saved the money to buy homes? You don't you don't have any sense of the history of a dual labor market in this country? You know, I may be teaching at Princeton, but my dad couldn't go to Princeton. Is that sufficient? Right. I mean, we can begin to kind of lay out right policies that have produced right an unequal playing field. And so then to fall back on merit. Right as a kind of way of holding off an attempt to address it, again, is bad faith, is disingenuous. This is a, a, a little bit of a detour, but a, a funny dimension of this, wrinkle of this in our politics, is I think a charge very often thrown at liberals, and I think often fairly thrown, is that they can lack a sense of history and mm-hmm. that there is a tendency to, to always look for progress, to, to underrate the importance of where we've come from and how that has shaped us and mm-hmm. potentially even the wisdom inherent in, in that, but, but also just the constraints of it, right? That, you know, the, the Birkin conservatives will tell you, right, that things are the way they are for a reason. And if you forget that, you can do a lot of damage to society. And then you get into this conversation and all of a sudden people are like, it doesn't matter even what was going on with your parents. <laughs> like, exactly. start the clock in 2015. It's fine starting then and like go from there. And there's a very funny flip of the um, of one of the normal political divides where I think – you know, liberals are often in the position of arguing to leave more history behind, um, and conservatives are often in the position of saying, you know, our history shapes who we are. And then you get into to one of these questions, with some of the racial questions, but also other questions, I think, around inequality, um, economic opportunity, things like that. And all of a sudden, it, it, it flips immediately, and it's, you know, liberals saying, look, you know, where your parents were, what social networks they had, what they were allowed to do, like that, that matters. And conservatives saying, no, 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 <laughs> like, <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. <laughs> Everything, you know, just start the clock right this second. Yeah, it's ironic. And, you know, and, and, and it's rare these days to bump into a, a serious Burkean, a Burkean conservative. Common most to of these, bump into somebody who claims to be one. Yeah. You know, most of these folks are liberals uh, in the traditional sense of what we mean by that word. Uh, conservative liberals, but they're liberals. 
um, um, in, in one sense. Um, so, you know, the idea of having a conversation with uh, a person who's committed to a kind of conservatism that would be consistent with Edmund Burke would be a bit refreshing, <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, uh, but I think you're absolutely right. And, and usually people get, they become ahistorical uh, in the moment in which they're confronting uh, the reality of the inequality that they're trying to deny. All right, so none of that matters. None of the things that we talked about, the history of dual labor market, the history of a dual housing market, right? the ways in which at a place like Princeton, you know, black folk didn't start arriving at Princeton until uh, the late 60s and in substantive numbers uh, uh, until till the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s. And so, so that, none of that matters in terms of how we talk about these things or to kind of see the way you know, the recent cheating crisis with USC and others it's just one example of how money games the system and how it's not merit that's driving everything. But none of this matters, right? Uh, we're supposed to just simply look to not pay attention to the reality of the matter and just keep our eyes on the ideal. Right? This is at the heart of Noah Rothman's social justice thing, right? So the ideal of meritocracy and individual liberty I take it he's trying to make the claim are the commitments that social justice warriors reject. And, and then you just simply say, well, let's, let's interrogate uh, these ideals and whether or not they actually map onto our practice. Um, well, he doesn't do that because he can't. Because if he did, it would undermine his claim. I think that one of the most toxic, accidentally toxic is actually the way I'd put this, ideas in American life is equality of opportunity. Because it's something that we all agree on or claim we all agree on. But in order to agree to it, We've had to define the word opportunity down so far that we've almost lost the ability to see what we're even talking about. Look, mm -hmm. like I'm I'm reasonably far left, I think, at least compared to the average American on a lot of these issues. And I would never try to institute true equality of opportunity. I mean, that you, you couldn't like that. <laughs> like what once you I mean, I just had a kid. Like once you get into, you know, what parents you get, I mean, it the things that make up for our opportunities, this the social networks that we're born into, you'd have to do social engineering on so vast a scale that the mind repels from the concept. And so you end up with this incredibly denuded idea of what opportunity means in these cases, which is often just the freedom to strive within whatever context you've been given, whatever cognitive disadvantages or advantages you've been born into, whatever your inheritance is, whatever um, your sort of regional set of opportunities are, you know, all the rest of it, whatever you've been exposed to as a kid, but you're free to try hard. And <laughs> that's something, that, that's not nothing. You don't get that in every society. But I think it creates a real confusion in, in what we're talking about. The thing where politicians say, I don't believe in equality of, of outcome, I believe in equality of opportunity. Like it's actually a much it is much harder to imagine the kind of social engineering you would have to do to institute equality of opportunity than equality of outcome. You know, you know, and, and you know what? I think you're right in terms of these phrases. You know what I want instead? I just want a just society. You know? It doesn't matter, you know, where you were born or what color you are or who you love and the like, um, that you should, you know, be able to make a living wage, uh, that you should have decent health care 
And this is sort of a Rawlsian theory of justice that you're offering here. Uh, well, you know, in some ways, it's it's not just simply Rawls. Not well, I'm, I wouldn't consider myself a Rawlsian. I'm a Deweyan in some sense. So it has these kind. I of apologize for that slur. <laughs> Although Rawls wrote his master's thesis, <laughs> I think on doing. Um, there, there's this um, there's this kind of communitarian under underpinning foundation to what I'm thinking about. Right, there are certain values that ought to animate the society that we live, that we live in. What are we committed to? And it seems to me that. Every human being should have the opportunity, as I've said, to, and Dewey uses this language in democracy and education, it's not only to be able to dream dreams, but to acquire the resources to make those dreams a reality. And in doing so, right, that it doesn't, it seems to me we need a society that says that if you, you know, people should have a living wage, that they should uh, have access. They should not just simply have access to health care, but health care uh, should be made available to all Americans, right? That we should have a roof over our heads, that we should, I mean, we can, I'm committed to those values as well as to the value of individual liberty. Those aren't in opposition in my mind, but in so many other folks' minds, they are because there are other kinds of values that they're committed to that oftentimes they don't want to make explicit. So something you talk about in the book is you have a discussion of the way, uh, and, and here I'm quoting you, that the broad sweep of black political life has been winnowed down to what some take to be the only acceptable form of black politics, black liberalism. Can you mm-hmm. talk a bit about that critique and maybe the way it plays into whether some of the ideals you're talking about here are even voiced in contemporary politics? Yeah, you, you know, it's I got in a lot of trouble for that. <laughs> um, part of part of what has happened, I think, over the course of the 20th century, and has certainly made its way uh, uh, in, in, in to to our current moment, is that the complexity and nuance and diversity of African American politics has narrowed. Uh, when you look at you know the turn of the century, you know the early 1920s and 30s. Uh, you saw black nationalists, you saw black Marxists, um, you saw pan-Africanists, you saw black anarchists, right? I mean, it was it was alongside black liberals, and even the black liberals had an internationalist uh, kind of uh, orientation. So the 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 black political sphere was was rich, um, and debate was had depth. I think part of what comes out of uh, the grave or the death of the civil rights movement is a particular narrative of black politics that is all about hailing the state for particular rights and protections. So a certain kind of black politics that's rooted in a liberal vision constitutes right the most viable and mainstream or legitimate form of black politics. So if you have a black leftist thrust, uh, black nationalism is seen as, as by definition bad. I hope there would be uh, a kind of left green thrust, but none of that really is evidenced in, in our current political landscape, because I think you know, we tell ourselves a story that, you know, with the assassination of Dr. King, we get the decline of the black freedom movement with black power and its preoccupation with identity politics, uh, which is a caricature, I think, of black power uh, and all of its complexities. Um, and so then there's this kind of narrative of decline, which then 
singles out a particular variant or a particular story of black politics, you know, from Rose, you know, the founding of the NAACP to Brown v. Board of Education to Rosa Parks sitting down to I Have a Dream, maybe Selma to King's murder. And that particular narrative keeps so much of the richness of black politics out of view and particularly the richness of the black radical tradition out of view. One of the things I wonder about when I hear that narrative is it, in retrospect, looks to me like the kind of mid to late 20th century, not late, actually, sort of, you know, the 60s, 70s, 80s era. Mm -hmm. It was a period in American life of unusual ideological openness. I mean, what you were just saying about there being Marxists and and socialists and, you know, a, a much wider array of radical ideologies represented. I mean, that was true outside of black politics as well. Right. You know, yeah. you went to any college campus in that period, you know, you, you would have had more of that. And there does seem to be to have been a narrowing of the political imagination after that. Mm-hmm. And I also wonder right now if it isn't opening up again a bit. Um, I think Bernie Sanders represents that. I think Trump in some ways represents that. I don't think it is as radical as it was in that era, but it's also potentially early in this in this um, turn of the wheel. But but so I'm curious if you think that the the narrowing that happened in your view in black politics was for structurally different reasons than simply the narrowing that happened in politics, or it represents something similar that there there was some kind of similar accommodation made uh, all across the system where people seem to at least for a, a period of a couple of decades decide the boundaries of what was possible to imagine in American political life was simply quite a bit quite a bit more conventional. You know, I think, you know, on a Venn diagram, you would see a, a lot of overlap and then there's some then there's some separation, I think, because a lot of this has something to do with, you know, a black political class that in so many ways sells the soul for a mess of pottage, to quote James Weldon Johnson. Um, and and the, the choices of that black political class aren't reducible to these broader global forces, right? Because it's not just happening in the United States. I mean, you know, the ascent of Reaganism happens alongside the ascent of Thatcherism. Um, We begin to see economic forces that deepen the precarity of workers across the globe, uh, where um, unions are particularly uh, singled out for a certain kind of attack um, that, that, you know, it seems almost purposeful to keep workers, uh, you know, struggling so much that they could barely keep their noses above water so they can't organize and do the work that um, uh, is necessary for, for, for changing the conditions of living of everyday ordinary folk. Uh, we see the shift from an emphasis on, on those who, who work to those who, you know, the producers, as it were. This is the basic logic of, of the shift in a certain kind of economic orientation. So black folk are caught up in this, right? And in some ways we become the poster children of a lot of it because we're in deindustrialized spaces. Uh, uh, we, we find ourselves on, on the back end of, of what happens with technological innovation and how it impacts uh, uh, the life chances of everyday ordinary folk uh, for good and for, for bad. Uh, so I think there's this amazing overlap. And then, of course, in our own context, Reaganism just, and just in, to my mind, choked the life out of a radical democratic vision and did so in very deliberate ways. And now we, we have a kind of remnant 
that continues to have its fingers around the throat of the country and people are resisting. So Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, with his social democratic vision, uh, AOC, uh, Alexandra uh, Ocasio-Cortez. Um, I mean, we have what on the pages of the New York Times people or no, the pages of the USA Today op-eds about democratic socialism. I mean, this is an opening. Uh, folk are, are reaching for different kinds of political languages to, to, to describe uh, what's possible. And what's interesting is you going back to an earlier question around political sorting. The corporate Republicans and the corporate Democrats are all in the middle, quote unquote, desperately trying to hold on to a status quo that has been disrupted. And then you have the kind of, you know, the fringe right from Tea Party to the racist and the alt-right and all those folks. And then you have not the far left. I don't know what people mean by that. Um, but you have folk on the left who are trying to break the, the the whole of of a certain kind of corporate wing of the Democratic Party, so that we can imagine a much more robust uh, understanding of the social contract. So there's an opening here that I think is really really fascinating. How we got there? There's some overlap. And there's some, I think, some interesting differences that we would have to keep track of. Well, you talk in, in the book about white fear as being a, a big player in this, that the, the mm-hmm. fear of activating white fear distorted black political behavior because at a certain point it became clear that, and Nixon played off of this, Reagan in a different way played off of this, that if there was a black political movement that scared the white majority, that the political backlash of that could just make everything worse for for the very people that the that African American political actors were trying to help, and I actually think that's uh, extendable, um, not in mm-hmm. its racial connotations, but but to other parts of leftism too. That again and again, you've had sort of fear and backlash from a you know a status. Let's call it a status quo oriented public. Sometimes I think that there's a slightly comforting story that it's all you know corporate control or ideological you know, um, machinations that, that that keep things from moving as far as a lot of people involved in more radical politics wanted to. But it's often a public that gets scared um, and can be scared reasonably easily. Um, that doesn't trust government that much. It doesn't trust people coming out with huge plans all that often. Um, and that I, it, it feels to me like the, like the test we're in right now has something fundamental changed in politics, that mm-hmm. when one of these coalitions gets into power again, they're going to be able to do things that their forerunners weren't? Or has something changed ideologically or even technologically in the way we have these conversations such that when one of these coalitions gets into power again, they are going to have convinced themselves that something changed and then like run into a brick wall of American institutions and publics often are very resistant to, to big and fast change. I, I honestly don't know the answer, but it feels in some ways like the foundational question right now. Oh, absolutely. You know, and one of the things that I've been saying over and over again is that those of us who are committed to um, a much more just society, which some people will want to use the shorthand as a progressive vision, right? We just need to pursue that vision relentlessly. We need to articulate it at the level of ideas and at the level of policy and and, and really, really begin to to think about how uh, to implement it at every level of the society, right? Such that it becomes kind of common sense. When you think about how badly Goldwater was defeated, um, and then you think about what they did from think tanks to 
local politics to to panel dis- I mean to conferences are I mean just the structural institutional response to that defeat. Um, and they weren't really worried about whether or not they could convince up people uh, of their view. They just they just in some ways uh, put in place a plan, a blueprint, right, to take hold of of the reins of government at every level uh, and make it America's common sense, such that by 1980 the people that we thought were were crackpots were now running the country. So I want to push on that. I just read a book called Rule and Ruined by Jeffrey Caviservice, um, and mm-hmm. it's a book about the decline and fall of moderate Republicans. And it's a fascinating book, and it's one I'm going to explore more on the podcast in, in, in the future, too. Oh, but great. but it, it really hits on this conversation because he's telling the story of like exactly that moment. And one of the things that is fascinating, the way he tells it, because he wants to tell a story of moderate republicanism was a distinct ideology. It was a thing. It had supporters. There was right. Rockefeller and Scranton and mm-hmm. George Romney and John Lindsay and all these potentially national leaders. And they polled great and, th- and they had a distinct vision for the country and they had uh, supporters. And so then he kind of goes through and he's telling the story that I think if you read it, it reads a bit as a story of human folly that again and again, Rockefeller was too egotistical and self-obsessed or the moderates wouldn't aggressively organize at a convention or, you know, like every time something strategically goes wrong. And then meanwhile, there's this whole operation going on on the conservative side that, that is more the way you discuss it, you know, this this big plan and blueprint but then I think about, well, what was actually happening then and how might you tell that story? And actually, the conservatives were messing up left and right. They got torched in the 1964 election under Goldwater. There was a feeling that their whole movement was right. dead. Um, right. You know, They made tons of mistakes. Ronald Reagan would make uh, – would just say things that were as dumb or wrong as anything any other moderate said, although we tell those – we tell the story of those gaps on the moderate side as determinative. Well, obviously, for Reagan, it's like, oh, well, he just skated right past them. And whenever I see something like that, it makes me think that we're seeing a we're seeing a structural story being translated into an individual story, that there is a demand for a certain kind of conservatism. And by the way, I don't think it was really Goldwater's. Um, Goldwater wanted to undo most of the New Deal, and Reagan didn't get to do any of that. Um, mm-hmm. But Goldwater did run on this racially regressive law and order politics, and Reagan picked that up, and it turned out there was a huge market. And I think that one of the hard things about politics is we so often want to believe I'm not sure exactly who the we in this is, but I think that the way the story of politics is told by people in it is as a story of strategic decisions really making the difference, as opposed to like anything else, there's a bit of a market and you have to you you have to create something people want to buy and you can manipulate the market somewhat, but not all that much. And so it's really not about the way conservatives organized. It's that they eventually found a kind of politics that through sort of corporate money on the one hand and social conservatism on the other, there was there was a union there that was politically powerful. But they didn't have enough movement to say, take apart Medicare and Medicaid, much less social security. And so there are these constraints on politics. And the question is often where they are and if they are actually movable. Does that make sense? Yeah. No, it does. I mean, I, I would say that there, there are elements of, in any full story, I think there would be elements of, 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 of a variety of different accounts, right? You could tell uh, the history of, of a particular uh, military uh, battle from the vantage point of the generals or the vantage point of the corporals or the vantage point of the land or the vantage point of the peasantry that were affected, depending upon your point of view, right? And each orientation to the story 
reveals something particular about the event under consideration. So I think you're absolutely right that that on a certain from a certain vantage point, it's not so much the genius of the modern conservative movement that allowed them to take over uh, the reins of government. Um, and it's not solely that, right? It's a combination of things. I think part of what I was trying to do is to illustrate what it means to at least try to be deliberate in putting forward one's vision. I don't think modern conservatives were concerned uh, with convincing all Americans of the merits of their position. I think they thought they were right, and they pursued relentlessly uh, the means by which they could implement their vision for the country. And it became common sense. So even though Reagan didn't necessarily uh, uh, explicitly attack the New Deal, he made the the critique of big government common sense. Uh, so small government became a kind of trope uh, that carried forward the critique of the New Deal, which is about government's overreach. And then Democrats, of course, with DLC and others, you know, they begin to, you know, take on that language. And so from small government to smart government. And so there's 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 a way in which the frame, the framing has has shaped our political imaginations in particular sorts of ways. So the lesson that I'm trying to suggest here is that, quote unquote, progressives, whatever we might mean by that word, they need to organize uh, and be deliberate and act, to use uh, a, a word, one of John Dewey's favorite words, to act intelligently in the pursuit of their ends and to do so uh, with an eye to towards, towards convincing the country that their policy positions are not only right for, for them individually, for each, each American, for Americans individually, but for the future of the country uh, as a whole. And hopefully that will join with other elements at work in our current moment. Does that make sense? It does. And to me, one of the interesting things about it is that you seem to have had a progression of becoming more confident or optimistic that that work can be done within the political system as it's constituted. In in, in the book, which comes out in 2015, I think, Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you you push for a, what you call an electoral blank out where black voters sit out the 2016 election as a quite radical protest to insist that um, the Democratic Party, which would be the party competing for them, take their needs much more seriously. But but I saw on Twitter just the other day that, you know, you do intend to, to support a candidate, sort of any Democratic <laughs> candidate in 2020. And, and that I, I'd be curious to hear a little bit about um, the thinking behind that shift. Oh, I got in so much trouble for that, Ezra. <laughs> Uh, you know, one of my favorite writers is Jose Saramago, um, and you know he wrote. You know, everyone knows the novel Blind Blindness, but he wrote a wonderful novel entitled Seeing. And at the heart of the novel is this kind of bloodless revolution where people go, they vote, they exercise the franchise, but when when the state goes to to count the votes, all of these ballots are blank. Um, and it reveals the kind of you know totalitarian undertow. Of the state. I mean, this is a kind of parable that that shows us um, the mask of authoritarian politics. So I thought, in the context of of Clinton running, because when I was writing the book, it looked as if Jeb Bush was going to be the Republican nominee. And so I thought 
if Jeb Bush is going to be the Republican nominee, even though there were questions around the judiciary, that we could begin to try to push the Democratic Party more to the left, uh, particularly with regards to racial issues. Because over the last eight years with Barack Obama in office, we had to mute, at least some people decided, to mute the questions around race. Uh, even as Black Lives Matter was push, were, as, as the Black Lives Matter movement was pushing the issue around policing, there was a sense in which the hell that Black people were catching as a result of the Great uh, the Great Recession had not come into full view. So I figured that, given the contraction under the eight years of Obama, that we needed to begin to push uh, in a decidedly much more aggressive way. And then Donald Trump was the Republican nominee, and I thought. I wrote a piece with a political scientist, uh, Frederick Harris, uh, from Columbia for Time magazine, where we said, well, if you're in a battleground state, vote for Hillary Clinton. But if you're uh, in, in a decidedly red state, you know, vote your conscience because it could then have an impact on the number of delegates to the Democratic Convention. Da, 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 da. And so I was continuing to kind of think about a modified version of the blank out campaign because I, I made a mistake, Ezra, and I shouldn't have made this mistake given my reading of American history, I overestimated white folks. I did not believe white America would vote for him, would put Donald Trump in office. In retrospect, I don't know why I believed that. And so I thought I had room, right, to, to make this kind of political push, to do this sort of work. And, and it, it, it turned out to be a disastrous day. I was on Democracy Now!, uh, as a commentator, when when the results were coming in, and I only thing I could say and you know to mumble and is oh shit they did it look at this, and so now, uh, given the kind of civil war that's happening within the Democratic Party, I'm not a Democrat uh, in a formal sense, but given the opening that we've been talking about, um, I think uh, at the level of formal politics we have we have an opportunity. Uh, but I think we need to get Trump out of office in order for that opportunity to take shape. Um, I don't know if that's satisfying to no, most it does. of my I mean, critics. T- to me, but... well, I don't know about your critics. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I can only speak for myself. I mean, what's fascinating about it is that putting almost everything else aside, the space for reform within the two parties has been more dramatic than I would have expected five years ago. I, like you, I did not, I did not think the Republican Party was, among other things, such a weak political institution mm-hmm. that somebody like Trump could come in and take it over. Whether or not somebody like Trump could be appealing, I would have thought that the party machinery would have been more effective at stopping him because parties were were previously stronger. I think it would have stopped him, you know, 10 years ago. Um, And then on the other hand, I think that, you know, you've really, really seen some interesting changes and opening up inside the Democratic Party just in the last couple of years. And I think Bernie Sanders deserves a lot of the credit for that. I mean, I think we're seeing that the parties are more flexible institutions, which also suggested American politics for good and for bad is a more flexible space than people recognized because, you know, in an era of very high partisanship but weak parties, if you're able to take over a party, then you're very close to power almost no matter what you believe. And I think that right. we used to think that – I think it actually was true that what a candidate believed or what a political coalition believed had a greater effect on how they performed electorally 50 years ago than it does today because people would switch parties. People would go and vote for someone else. But now mm-hmm. voting patterns are so locked in. Um, that you know, if you, if you get the you know, if you if you get to run on the party, 
then you know you you start with that you know you start within spitting distance at least nationally of a win. Oh, absolutely, and particularly on on the Democratic side, because I mean we don't see any growth possibilities on the Republican side in terms of what Democrats can do. I mean, even though we have the kind of polarity that we uh, polarization that we've just talked about. Uh, where political identity is bound up with individual identity, right? How one votes is tied to how one understands understands oneself. The the possibility of expanding the electorate is a much more a viable strategy for for the Democratic side than it is for the Republican side. And we saw we've seen this over and over again, and in, in, particularly in terms of midterm races, right? So I I think you're right. I you know I said not too long ago, that what's going to be interesting is that if uh, the activist base over the course of the Democratic primary achieves what it what it what I think they they're setting out to achieve and and there's a progressive as the nominee for the Democratic Party, the question that has to be asked is that will centrist Democrats support that progressive candidate? That's the question because you remember they keep asking the they keep asking the question in the reverse, right? If you get a you know they keep telling progressives you can't do the Bernie Sanders thing again, right? You must support whomever the nominee is, you know, and they you kind of imagine this finger wagging in front of the noses of these so-called progressives who acted badly in the 2016 election, and then you say, well, no, 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 no. The the, the more interesting question is, will you support a progressive if the progressive is the nominee? And, you know, to be honest with you, uh, the, the kinds of responses that I've gotten suggest to me that for many of these centrist uh, Democrats, they are more afraid of a genuine leftist thrust than they are of the fascism of Donald Trump or neo-fascism of Donald Trump. It's, all, I, I, it's always hard to know <laughs> who, who people are referring to in, in the different wings of the party. But my read at this point of American politics is that candidate choice just matters a lot less than we ever thought. I actually think there was a study that came out pretty recently, possibly two, that just showed that if you looked at um, whether in primaries, Democrats or Republicans elected sort of the more extreme candidate or the more moderate candidate and just saw what happened to voting totals, it just didn't change very much. Um, the, the studies, I think, were presented as being surprising that the more extreme candidates didn't have a voting penalty. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I think in some ways, the more, you know, it, it, in some ways, I think the more powerful result of that was just there wasn't much reaction. And I think that actually makes sense, right? That's a function of high levels of polarization as the Republican Party and the Democratic Party become so different. It makes the differences between candidates on any one side smaller because the gap between everybody on one side and I mean you were just saying you know progressive and centrist Democrats and you know if you if you just think about this in terms of the Democratic primary in 2016 of Hillary Clinton to Bernie Sanders you know I'm not saying there aren't differences there and there are certainly differences in political style but the differences in policy are just not big compared to them in any Republican any Republican Oh, and, absolutely. And that turns out to be true on the Republican side at this point, too. And so I just think it's created different dynamics among the electorate that, that didn't used to exist. I mean, Barry Goldwater had a lot of crossover voters to the Democrats. Richard Nixon took a lot of voters from the Democrats um, against yeah, McGovern. And that just doesn't happen now. And that creates a very, the rules of politics are just different. Yeah, that makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. It'll be really fascinating, though, uh, to see how it will play itself out. So let me ask you then the question we used to, to end the podcast, which is, what are three books you've read over the years that have influenced you, influenced your thinking that you'd recommend? So the first one that I would recommend is uh, the 1920, you know, John Dewey's Gifford Lectures, published in 1929, The Quest for Certainty. Um, it's, a, it's a hard toe, but I think it's really, really helpful how this, um, 
this search for a kind of truth that exists apart from human doings and sufferings uh, can generate all sorts of not only intellectual problems, but social problems, kind of the illusion of safety and, and the carnage that follows from, from, from that illusion, I think is really, really helpful. So I would say the first book would be John Dewey's The Quest for Certainty. Um, the second book is, I think, it's a collection of works. I, I would urge anyone to read uh, the collected nonfiction work of uh, James Baldwin, published by the Library, the Library of America edition, or even the edited volume, The Price of the Ticket. I've been really grappling with Jimmy Baldwin for for a while now. He has been my muse. And Baldwin's unflinching engagement at the level of moral and ethical questions and how they evidence themselves in our living around democracy. I take Baldwin to be the inher- one of the inheritors of Emerson. You know, he's just Emerson across the tracks, as it were. So I would say read, you know, the completed works of nonfiction, and particularly um, not not The Fire Next Time. Everybody reads The Fire. Uh, at least I hope everyone's re- reading The Fire Next Time. But uh, read No Name in the Street, written in 1972. It's a much more exacting and demanding book uh, in that collection. And then the last book I would say is much more contemporary. I would say uh, take a look at Imani Perry's More Beautiful and More Terrible, The Embrace and Transcendence of Racial Racial Inequality in the United States. Um, It's an extraordinary book uh, in terms of her synthesis of of a wide range of literatures. And she puts forward this idea that I think is really rich, and that is the cultural practice of racial inequality. And she splits the difference between, you know, individual acts of discrimination and prejudice and structural accounts of discrimination and, and racism and shows how this kind of cultural solution continues to produce uh, these unequal and unjust outcomes. And it's a really brilliant text and particularly the ending of the book uh, and what she recommends for us. It's kind of a book that f- flew under the radar, but I think is, is really a seminal text. Eddie Cloud Jr., thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate you. Thank you to Eddie Cloud Jr. for being here. Um, there's a lot in that conversation that I've been thinking about since it happened, but I really I love that line, what we do reveals what we believe. Um, there is so much in politics and in life where we want to suggest we are something other than what our actions reveal us to be. And there aren't always great ways of cutting through it, but but I think that's one of them. You know, what what people do, what countries do, what outcomes we actually are willing to live with and which ones we aren't, that reveals what we believe. Not not all the not all the pretty language. Um, so I think that if you take nothing away from the conversation but that, I think it's a pretty useful lens to have on on politics and and for that matter on life. Thank you to Topher Ruth at Berkeley for helping me engineer the podcast, to my producer Jeff Gelb. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. And oh, wait, I forgot again. Um, if you've got questions for the Ask Me Anything, send them to Ezra Klein Show at Vox.com. <laughs>